Hello and welcome to this, the last edition of 2020 of the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast. And what a year it's been. Uh, the four of us were just discussing before we came on air that uh, we're not going to do a forecast for what happened next year or m- what might happen next year because we'd done something similar at this time. In 2019, we would have all had eggs on our faces. It's been a year when uh, the unexpected really did happen with massive consequences from a public health point of view around the world. Let's not forget that. And also some extraordinary things happening in the financial markets, uh, not only from investors' point of view, but from the way that uh, the authorities around the world uh, reacted and tried to ensure that the damage uh, was as limited as possible, in which they succeeded to a large extent. Uh, So with me, as usual, my co-host Angus Foote, and our data experts, Nisha Long and Frank Talbot. Uh, And Frank, I'm going to start with you to gather your thoughts on 2020. Uh, As I say, we're not going to look back on anything you might have thought was going to happen in the year. But actually, what did happen? What stands out for you from from this year's extraordinary event? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you couldn't have predicted going in that that it was going to be this way. But there's an irony in the fact that if you'd have... um you know, stuck to your knitting and sold in May and gone away, as it were, you'd have probably been looking pretty, pretty good. You know, the, the same prevailing trends that were leading for a long time before stuck to it. So if you would just come back to planet Earth, many stock markets uh, above pre-crisis highs. Um, and that's the biggest surprise to me, you know, the, both the brevity of the stock market crash and those highs that I talked about. You know, you wait 10 years for a significant market market event. Uh, not that we wanted it to come in this shape, but then it's gone in a blink. You know, it's so much less protracted than it was in, in 08. And again, very different to 08 and 2000 when it was the industry that, that topped the return charts going into those crises that was sold off most heavily, namely tech in 2000 and um, financials in 2008. Um, you know, while this time it's only been, like I said, a fair win for the strategies that were winning before, namely growth focused equities with a heavy bias towards technology. I mean, that's where the growth has been coming from. Um, the good news is that most of those funds had done so well for so long beforehand that they attracted the most flows pre-crisis. So if you'd have stuck to your uh, stuck to your guns and refrained from crystallizing any losses, you'd be sitting pretty t- today. Um, uh, something actually probably quite a surprise is that it'd been the, the resilience of Asia to the pandemic broadly. Uh, in the main, they've done extremely well, and that has obviously translated into stock market returns. Uh, Asia's home to most of the best performing markets this year, China, Taiwan, South Korea, India. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's what, what, what really stands out for me. And coming to you, Angus, uh, you sat down virtually for most of the year, if not physically, with a lot of important selectors, the people who choose these funds and allocate money. Uh, how's it been for them, apart from sort of as shocking as for the rest of us, I suppose. Yeah, I guess uh, there are different parts to that, aren't there? The, the, the new ways of working everyone's had to get used to. I think that's refocused the way fund selectors and fund analysts think about portfolio managers because obviously you interact them interact with the, a manager in a very different way if you're talking to them on Zoom uh, as opposed to going into their office and looking them in the eye and having a good old poke around. Um, so I think that's been a that's been a preoccupation, and and whether or not that changes the decisions that get made, I, I guess only time will tell. I think uh, picking up on Frank's point, one of the things that that has come back to the fore is 
we're all supposed to be long-term investors, aren't we? Fund selectors too, you know, portfolio managers. Everybody should be thinking about being a long-term investor because we, we do this podcast. We say this sector's up, that sector's down, you know, values down, values back up. Managers reversing their losses over a month's period. Uh, actually, the message is, going back to what Frank said, you stick to what you know, you mm. buy things and you stay with them over the long term. And if you've made your decisions on a sensible basis, then you'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's struck me in the past few weeks with the, we've had uh, the US presidential election settled, more or less. We've had the arrival of the three vaccines and maybe more to come. And all of a sudden, value is back in town, uh, which, and I'm just, you know, going back to your selectors, Angus, I'm not sure, you know, sure that's how it works in the real world is it that they all say oh yeah growth's over i've dumped all my growth funds and now i'm going to value funds uh, i mean a you've got to have perfect timing and any selector worth his or her salt will tell you that doesn't happen and b well you know, yeah I think there's an important distinction isn't there between the, the the people who are selecting funds selecting best in class managers and in within certain peer groups and asset classes and people who are essentially doing asset allocation and you know, Frank mentioned the resilience of Asia and at the asset allocation level, private banks, CIOs, these kinds of people have been talking for a long time about that long term tilt in economic power to Asia. And, I, you know, I, I repeat myself. It's about being long term, isn't it? So you could argue this is about the pandemic or you could argue it's about the fact that actually over a long, long period, Asia has been steadily gaining ground on the Western world in terms of economic power and influence. And, and that's where, you know, future investment returns might well come from. So I think that's part of it as well. I think yeah. that would have been a hard call to make actually going into it. Asia had lagged for quite some time and maybe you would see that as a value play. In most of the past 10 years, not been an emerging market story. It's been about US, US tech. That's been the driving force. So actually you had to be, you know, they have been talking about long-term tilt Asia, population growth, India and China, you know, like the, the basic for, for a long time. But I wonder how many investors actually, uh, you know, held with that going into this. Let me bring Nisha in here. Because, yeah, um, and, and, well, just... One so one of the it. yeah, so one of the things um, so um, had a CIO roundtable this week with um, super selectors as we call them in um, private banks, and the buzzword that they had for this year is acceleration. So acceleration of trends. So what we've seen is ESG accelerating, tech accelerating because of the work from home, the flexible working, and healthcare accelerating. So all these vaccines being pushed through at the fast rate because money's been thrown at it. It doesn't mean that they're not, you know, they've gone through the same processes, but it's just an acceleration that right. all of this has happened. And the flows that have gone into ESG funds in tech and in healthcare, it's, you know, we haven't seen that in a decade, the amount that have just gone in, uh, the stats that I've looked at to the end of October for this year, it's, it's huge. It yeah, I, I said some, on the acceleration of um, acceleration of vaccine uh, approvals. Somebody, uh, I heard somebody express it. People talk about how long should it take to get a vaccine approved? Why is it so quick? And somebody said to me, "It's imagine you're trying to drive across London in the rush hour. How long would it take you? Now imagine you're doing the same journey with a police escort, and every light is green." And, and that's that's the difference, and you accelerate yeah. the process. But on the ESG. Um, 
point that, that Nisha was making. ESG has been the sort of massive story of, of 2020 for me. Uh, I saw just this week on LinkedIn, uh, a very experienced veteran fund selector posted a comment, uh, which I will read to you. In the last two years, has any fund selector met a fund manager that doesn't have ESG embedded in their investment process? So that's somebody quite well known in the industry put that out on LinkedIn earlier in the week. And he's, as you can imagine, garnered um, several dozen comments about that. But but it, it, it shows you, uh, I guess, obviously, he's showing a degree of cynicism about the uh, or a degree of skepticism about the, uh, you know, how deeply ESG really is embedded. But it also shows you just how much that's become the headline story. Sure. Yeah. And you look at. I, for something else this morning, I was looking at, at BP uh, and, you know, the cost of BP getting capital is now extraordinary. It's, if you're a BP shareholder, you're demanding a, a dividend of 11%. I mean, that's because you have a lot of cynicism that the dividend is going to be paid. And they recently flogged their, did a sale and lease back on their head, beautiful headquarters in St. James in London, 250 million quid. And one presumes they did that because that's the cheapest way of, you know, They'll pay a yield of what three, four percent on those offices when they lease them back. That's a, you know, that's the cheapest way they can raise money at the moment. So I think it is coming into play that you know, behind the cynicism on ESG and and Frank's going to come in at the moment. It, it it is working its way through the market in terms of, of how non ESG companies c- can raise money and what price. Frank is our resident ESG cynic. It's not that I'm a cynic. You know, I want to save the planet like everyone else. As, as, as you know, smaller chance it looks like we're going to be able to do that's that. Why, that's why you're wearing a hoodie and keeping the heating down at home, <laughs> isn't it? Have, I have not got the heating on today. Yeah. No. Um, but, you know, it, with every asset manager under the sun touting their ESG prowess, you know, where were these people when it wasn't cool? Nowhere yep. to be seen. Like, it wasn't even a footnote in their presentation. You know, what's going to be interesting to see is if when the t- tables turn, you talked about BP, um, and the more offensive parts of the global economy start firing again, you know, hopefully they will at some stage or we're all in pretty bad situation. Will they not just flock to, to those investment areas and forget all about ESG? To a certain extent, we've highlighted this before, they, they've started doing that with China, you know, in the latter half of the year, you know, taking in bags of new investment, a country with massive state oversight, questionable humanitarian record. I'd love to be proved wrong on this, but money talks, and, and to a certain extent, the Americans have that right. Uh, they, they don't really look at ESG as the, as the, as the way that you, know, you should. No, I take, I take issue with you there, Frank. I, think that, I, think, I do think that you're wrong. I do think this is a change, that is, is, this is a change that's profound and long-lasting. Uh, and, and also, if you look at what's happening in the States, there are strong indications that actually the, the switch has been flipped there too. Okay, maybe it hasn't reached the level that it has in parts of uh, of Northern Europe, but uh, but ESG is certainly starting to appear appear on the radar of the big fund buyers. I, I, I think that's I think that's going to accelerate. Yeah, and I think it's it, it's the market at work. You know, solar prices are plummeting, wind prices are plummeting, uh, oil and gas prices aren't, and the cost of extracting them and the cost of borrowing money to to extract those you know if you go into you know jp morgan bank rightly gets criticized for lending to alaska oil developers uh and the people picket their headquarters in in manhattan and quite rightly so but you know 
I bet when they do lend money to those developers, they're extracting a pretty price and having liens over their assets and and uh, and so on. Whereas you come along with you've got a wind farm that you want to develop, there'll be a a, a bidding competition to lend you money uh, at the lowest price. So, you know, the market, Mister Market wins as usual. Uh, yeah, just one point I wanted to make as well about this year in itself, you've seen the E, the S and the G just play out in front of your eyes. So at the start of the year, we saw environmental issues with people like Greta Thunberg, you know, out there about climate change. As soon as the pandemic hit, you had the S in focus with human rights, you know, flexible working, working conditions, etc. And also what happened with Boohoo, you know, that was S really was in the limelight. And then we moved on to the G with Wirecard and Boohoo, you know, those companies coming out, um, their governance, corporate governance, you know, being an issue. So we've seen all those issues being played out at a much faster pace, well, pace this year than we have done before. But then also investors wanting their, well, clients wanting their money in these ESG funds. So actually the investor on the other side has no choice but to start seeking out these ESG investments for their clients. That's where the money is going at the moment. Well, if, if one thing's moved fast, Nisha, this yeah. year, one thing that hasn't moved fast is gender diversity. A nice little segue there. Because you wrote the headline of the year, Nisha, when you said, how long was it, 234 years? Yeah, 200 years. 200 yeah. years it would take to uh, to get parity in the fund manager ranks between men and women, uh, which segues even more nicely into the Citywide Gender Diversity Awards which are about to be announced imminently. Tell us a bit about yes, them. Yes, they are indeed. So the, um, as you mentioned, 200 years, we can't wait that long. Well, we don't have that long anyway, everyone here. Um, but, you know, to wait that long for gender parity in fund management is far too long. And so the reason Citywire have put together the Gender Diversity Awards is to actually celebrate those companies that have made massive headways in gender diversity. So not all of the companies, so the average figure is 11% of female fund managers in globally in this industry, but there are some companies who are way above that target, not just for um, percentage of fund managers, but also their turnover levels over the last 10 years for between males and females and how long they keep um, their female fund managers you know, in their business. So we wanted to highlight these groups and maybe we can learn something from each of these groups as well and how they've managed their hiring processes, talent management, et cetera. So we have shortlisted around 35 um, companies for the awards, um, ranging from best gender representation, most improved regional leaders as well. And we have a five strong judging panel who have scrutinized all these companies. We did ask them to send us a questionnaire with some questions um, that we asked them about um, things I've mentioned before, like retention, talent management, and also the investment processes that they themselves use at the companies. So, and the engagement processes with companies that they invest in themselves. So that was a new element that we wanted to bring in um, to see, you know, do they practice what they preach? Sometimes, yep. you know, you want to have that different um, area onto that. Angus, Angus. Wants to come in. I was just going to say, uh, in, one of one of the things that feeds into that, or is certainly very strongly linked to it, Nisha, you, I know you've been doing a lot of work on uh, the performance of mixed teams and and how you know mixed teams perform versus male only teams and female only teams, and we've got a lot of really interesting data on that. 
Uh, but but I mean, the, obviously, without giving away too many secrets, we we found that consistently mixed teams perform better. And one yeah. of the things that has been really interesting for me this year is the big gatekeepers, fund selectors, and and big gatekeepers again in the US. And I mean, the US maybe the perception maybe that it's behind on on ESG, but it's certainly not behind on addressing the issue of diversity, partly because they're under a whole lot more pressure um, on diversity issues in the US. But um, we've been finding that these big gatekeepers, big fund analysts are increasingly asking the asset managers they invest with about the diversity of their investment teams, because diverse, diverse, diversity of makeup equals diverse thinking equals better outcomes equals better returns. Uh, I think that's what the research has shown, Nisha. Yeah, the research is definitely showing it's the diversity of thought element. Um, so we have rerun some data on risk and return, looking at teams as well as sole managed funds, you know, male versus female, um, which will be out next year. So you all get a chance to have a look at that um, data. Um, but one thing which has come through is having that diversity of thought processes, whether it's in, in any kind of mixed team or in you know single gender teams, the returns are higher but with a lower risk level as well. So you have that element um, playing into it, but just having two decision makers, main decision makers rather than one, you know, you can bounce off each ideas of each other, but it does play into this whole process that, you know, having that diversity in place, you do have, yeah, you know, yeah. different well, choices. Yeah, I mean, what, what a lot of the gatekeepers of the big fund selectors have said to me is that they always intuitively knew that diverse a, a, a diverse decision-making process or a decision-making process that drew on diversity was better, but they'd never baked it into their processes because they didn't have the data. And this data yeah. actually now it quantifies does. that. Proves um, one, it. Yeah, absolutely proves it. There's um, one point as well. So when we sent out these questionnaires to the shortlisted companies as well to ask about their investment processes, it was good also to see that they do vote against companies where their board structure doesn't have a female on the board. So, you know, that is being more pronounced now. I'm seeing that more and more through my research that, you know, they will actively vote against some issues when it comes to looking at their board structure in diversity full stop, not just on gender related matters. Well, the NASDAQ this week, I think, put out a proposal to include in their listing rules that all listing companies must have a minimum uh, diversity level on the board. And that's, yeah. that's, that's a, a draft stage at the moment. But I mean, if that's... It's easy to see other exchanges or other other organisations latching onto that if that becomes a, if that becomes a regulation. So, Nisha, uh, uh, before we wrap up, Frank, sorry, beg your pardon. Don't want to silence any diverse voices here. No, Carry that's on. fine. Actually, I wasn't going to comment on this. I was going to move on to something else. But um, ah, okay. Uh, I was just going to say that you know while I'm uh, coming back to ESG, you know while I'm uh, while I'm sceptical about asset managers, I would say that. Uh, this year, the conversations I've had with fund managers and the asset management industry have been much more, no pun intended, frank. Uh, and uh, you cut through a lot of the BS when you're talking to someone directly in their home, wearing their hoodie like I am. Uh, and I think uh, from, from that point of view, I think it has, it has been good. So Good. Well, that's, that's a not nice... I'm No, it's a nice seasonal point to, to wrap up with. Uh, Nisha, before we go, just tell us when the awards are coming out when people will be able to find out about them. 
Yep, so we have a ceremony on December the 9th to celebrate the winners. Um, stay, stay tuned for that because we will be announcing the full list the next day so you can see who has won each of the categories. Excellent. Uh, thanks. Look forward to that. I think it'll be really important and extremely timely. Uh, so Angus, Nisha and Frank, thank you very much. Uh, I've loved doing these podcasts throughout the year. I'm looking forward to, to resuming them in January. And on behalf of us all, have a fabulous season, bubbling with people that you're safe to bubble with, as I'm sure we all will. And uh, here's to perhaps a less surprising 2021. So goodbye from us all. Thank you.